Hey, this is Kale Baldwin from Zero Tolerance uh, Gluten-Free Homebrew Club, and today I have Alan Winhausen from Hollow Daily Brewing. Thank you for joining us today, Alan. Yeah, cheers. Cheers to you. Um, so uh, we want to talk about Hollow Daily, and um, oh, I should have had a beer too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but before we do that, I just wanted to talk about your, uh, you know, how you got to start started brewing. Um, you know, have you always brewed gluten-free beer? Uh, tell us a little bit about your history and how you made it from starting brewing to Hollow Daily. Yeah, so um, I actually got my start in brewing back when I was in college. Um, I was going to school for chemistry, pre-med with a minor in biology. And I had some friends that were home brewing and I helped them out a couple of times. Um, but when I graduated from undergrad, um, I actually turned down medical school for probably the wrong reasons um, and then took a year off to wait to see if I could get into the med school that I really wanted to get into and during that time started applying around seeing what I could do that was uh, focused on the sciences that I had gone to school for that I loved so much and I applied for the uh, UC Davis beer program, the one-year beer pro program that they have and sent them my credentials and they said, great, you're in. There's a five-year wait list for matriculation. Um, so I ended up not going to med school at all. I kind of bounced around here and there, uh, got a teaching degree, um, traveled a bit, worked at a record store for a while, all of which, or during all of which I was doing some home brewing, not a ton, but a little bit. Um, and then I was teaching in rural Alaska when I got the email saying, hey, do you want to come to UC Davis next year? Your slot came up. And so I quit teaching pretty much right away and went and um, tried to find a job in brewing to get myself kind of prepared for going to brewing school. And I worked on the old mobile or kind of mobile, a very small manual canning line in the basement of Wincoop Brewing in Denver for a little bit, which is a gluten full brewery. Um, then I went to beer school, came back um, and was looking for a job in Colorado uh, where I'm from and worked at Pike's Peak as their brewer and then lead brewer for about two or three years. And then I had my first kid, uh, my daughter, and was looking for a job that didn't require me to have an hour commute there, an hour commute back on top of a 10 hour brew day. And Hall Daly was looking at hiring a head brewer at that time. And having gotten into beer really because of my love of science, it seemed like it was a great opportunity for me to expand upon what it means to be a science-based brewer, given that so much of gluten-free brewing relies on a strong base of biology. Um, that biology knowledge in order to brew it in a cost-effective way, but also in a way that makes it taste really good. Yeah, so, um, you know, um, you kind of uh, spinning off from that, I was uh, thinking, you know, what what's the most uh, happiest part of the process for you? <laughs> like, is it brewing the beer? Is it throwing the hops in and smelling the hops? Is it... <laughs> The science behind it and making a recipe that uh, uses a specific mashing regiment and uh, nailing that um, style you're trying to, do, to, to create. Uh, what, what makes you most happy when you're brewing beer? The thing that I really like about beer as a career is the opportunity to share what I've learned and also learn a lot from the community. Um, I really just love the nitty gritty, what makes beer tick. And there's so much collaboration and partnership in brewing in general. Um, and then also with the, the homebrew club, just the forums on Facebook, just how much people are willing to share what they've learned. And that is really what keeps me in this industry. I really love that aspect of continually learning, especially because there's an infinite amount to know about beer. So it's something that I can continually work on myself and get better at, but then share what I've learned along the way. And so the community is the thing that I love most about brewing. On a brew day, the thing I love most is when I get away from the brew house for like 30 minutes and I lose that nose blindness 
and then come back in and smell it again. <laughs> because when you're standing on the brew deck for eight hours, you don't smell anything. And then some, you know, somebody on a tour comes in and they're like, it smells great in here. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure it does. <laughs> so when I get out of the brew house for 30 minutes and come back and I get to smell that wonderful smell of fermentation and mashing and um, hops being added in the whirlpool, when I get to smell that, having stepped away from it for 30 minutes, that's pretty great. There's something that I remember brewing my first beer and that first time you throw in the, you know, pellet hops or a mm -hmm. whole, a, you know, whole cone hops and you get that smell. It's just yeah. amazing, right? You're like, wow, this is so awesome, right? This is to mm -hmm. totally worth it spending all day in my garage doing this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so you were, you started out brewing barley beers and, mm -hmm. um, then moved to Holiday and are focused on gluten-free beers now. So I, I, I know there's a lot of, I'd never brewed barley beers, but there's definitely a lot of differences you know, procedurally and technically. So what was the biggest challenge for you, you know, moving from, you know, the standard barley based beers to the beers that you brew now? Yeah. Um, for all of us on the production side of Hall Daily, there's um, five of us that work production, making the beer, um, four full-time and one part-time canner. Um, the four full-time people, all of us actually got our start in um, non-gluten-free beer, and we all are not um, on gluten-free diets. So for us, it's been a transition for the whole team. Um, and each of us have kind of come in at different points in Holiday's existence. But for me in particular, it was learning what has been the um, what had been the original recipes uh, that were being brewed, what were the flagship recipes, and why we were doing what we were doing. Realistically, though, from the boil onward, it's pretty much barley beer on a production scale. Um, there's not a whole lot that's different. You just need to be monitoring things a little bit more carefully, like gravities to make sure you don't have stalled fermentations if you're relying on enzymes for um, getting all of your sugars out. But yeah, really it was just learning that first three hours again and going back to what makes beer beer and figuring out how to get the same extraction from non-barley grains. So just a question popped into my mind about you come into a, a brewery that's already has these set flagship beers. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel about that as a brewer? Do you want to just like, you know, take those beers and tweak the recipes? Do you want to just create your own recipes? And is mm -hmm. it hard to take on someone else's flagship creations and um, just kind of brew someone else's recipe, if you will. Yeah. Um, it was, it's never really been my dream to be a owner of a brewery. Um, that is a whole skill set that I don't have. And it's a, a whole a mess of um, worries that I don't want to take on. Um, so I've never really had the opportunity to come in and be like, we're doing all my stuff and this is what I want to do. But that's also not really what I've wanted to do in beer. Um, I, I got into beer, like I said, for the science of it. So I've really enjoyed seeing other people's recipes and learning from them and then uh, working with them to continually improve them. Um, there's kind of two competing um, types of brewers. And we, we see it also in our own brew house. We have brewers that really want to go and do all experimental beers. Uh, which is convenient now that we have two brew houses, we can have a brew house dedicated to experimentation and fun and play. And then we also have our production brew house, which is all about nailing the recipe every single time. And that's really the harder thing to do, um, which isn't to say that it isn't hard to craft a recipe and nail it the first time, but making sure that the consistency is there so that if you have a can of favorite blonde from one month to the next month to a year later, it's still favorite blonde. That's really hard to do because you're dealing with expectations that aren't there if you're coming up with a new recipe um, just from whole cloth each time. Uh, but in either case, you're trying to constantly improve your process. 
regardless of if you're doing all experimentals or if you're trying to nail flagships. You're constantly trying to make the beer better, not only for the customer, but also for yourself. And so with each, each of our experimental batches, that's always a really fun thing to do is to sit down and be like, okay, what have we learned? And how can we make the next beer something completely different, but better? Um, like we, we recently uh, did our first true Rattler where we actually brewed um, a beer. It was a collaboration with a, a brewery in Phoenix, um, uh, Walter Station Brewing Company, where they were like, hey, we really like Kavik yeasts and they give these great orange, grapefruity aromas. And grapefruit is one of the flagship crops of Arizona. So we got a whole bunch of grapefruits um, from Arizona and did a Kavik ale or quick ale or a Kavik, whatever you want to say. <laughs> but that kind of two or three day fermentation, um, which we had never done before. And it was a lot of fun to experiment with that, but we took what we had learned by doing other fruit beers and applied it to making a Rattler with this. And it came out great. We did uh, seven barrels of it. We got, I think 13 kegs off of it. And it was gone within a couple months, even with quarantine. People came and just grabbed crowlers of it to go. Um, so that's a lot of fun, but also just continually improving so that that Randy's is better from year to year to year and making sure that it's still recognizable as fat Randy's, but it's always tasting as the best possible version of it. Um, that's also something that's important to us as well. So it's, I like them both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That Quebec is interesting. It's like the ultimate in speed brewing, right? You can, mm -hmm. I brewed a beer and it was done in two, two and a half days and yeah, you keg it probably be drinking it in you know a week and a half, right? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we still um, since we added a hundred and hundred and sixty four pounds of grapefruit puree into the fermenter, it kind of kicked back off again. So instead of being a two day beer, it was a six day beer. But yeah, it's a really fast yeast. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So I saw last year that you joined the uh, Basics of Brewing Quality Workshop for the Brewers mm -hmm. Association. Um, and so it sounds like you also have uh, history in teaching and tell us about uh, that workshop and um, uh, how teaching plays into your role as, as your position as a brewer and as a part of the Brewers Association. Yeah. Um, so th that kind of grew out of a uh, role that I have with the Colorado Brewers Guild as well. Um, with the Colorado Brewers Guild, I sit on their technical and education subcommittee. Um, so I've been working on getting some blog posts out to the Colorado Brewers and working on helping to educate Colorado Brewers and also learn from them. There's some really fantastic brewers in the state and they all are willing to share their technical knowledge with people. So from that, I ended up getting the job at the Brewers Association. Um, this year it's been on hiatus. Hopefully they'll bring it back, but that was pretty fun because we would actually ship out an entire lab on a pallet with, uh, we would ship out eight microscopes, um, stir plates, hot water bath. We would ship out like an entire brewery lab on a pallet to a brewery and it was all across the country. And then we would send um, myself and um, a couple other instructors out there and go and teach brewers the fundamentals of how to do quality assurance in a laboratory setting for a brewery. Um, so we did cell counts for yeast all the way through um, doing plating for microbiological contamination to checking for gravity uh, using both a old school hydrometer, using a, um, uh, we, we, we had everything. We had a really sweet Anton Parr. Uh, it's a kind of plunger-based gra gravity meter. And those things cost three grand, but it's an instant reading in Play-Doh and bricks. And I love that thing. <laughs> it's so funny that you awesome. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that Anton bricks because uh, JP mm -hmm. from Beerly Brewing, that was his favorite piece of equipment. He could not live without his... I think he yeah. has a different one that's like only 400 bucks or something like that. Yeah, but. and that one's actually the exact same. We had both. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's the exact same thing. It's just without the screen. So you actually have to use a smartphone and then you have to pay for um, unlocking different readings, even though it can do it all at once. You have to pay yeah. to unlock bricks and then you have to pay to unlock Play-Doh. 
but it's for, I think it's like 600 bucks. You can get the essentially same thing as a three grand machine. That's and pretty cool. And love that. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So let's talk about Hollow Daily, right? So Hollow Daily, for the people that don't know about Hollow Daily, um, give us just like a brief overview of um, your brew house size, where you're located, how many, how, how big of a brewery you are. Um, sure. You know, all that kind of stuff. So um, Hall Daily is located in Golden, Colorado. Uh, at this point, there are 14 breweries in Golden, and we're either the second or third largest. Um, we're never going to be the largest brewery in Golden. There's somebody that kind of holds that title pretty tightly. Um, but we were founded back in 2016. Uh, Karen Hertz was our founder, and um, she founded it when she had to adopt a gluten-free diet while working for the largest brewery in Golden and realized that she couldn't really fully engage in her community of friends because they all worked at a massive gluten brewery. And in Colorado, you know, after skiing, um, you have a beer. When you're tailgating, you have a beer. She didn't want to be the person out there doing shots of whiskey at a tailgate. Um, so she was like, I need to find a gluten-free beer. And she, ended up working with a lot with Twyla at Grouse Malting and also partnering with uh, Colorado State University um, with their fermentation sciences program and working to develop her style of craft beer. Um, she did that with Wayne Burns, our original head brewer, who now has his own brewery and he does like exclusively 13% barley wines and it's, it's cool, but it's not Hall Daily. Um, so I ended up inheriting a lot of recipes from him um, a kind of a weird inflection point for the brewery. They'd had a couple head brewers and they were in the process of expanding from the original tin brew house, which was a tin barrel uh, pub system with a infusion mash ton and a kettle whirlpool hybrid. And then two tin barrel fermenters and two tin barrel brights. Um, at that point, this was back in late 2016, early 2017, they realized that they needed to start to look for a second brewery to be able to can in the quantities that they need to meet the demand. And so they ended up getting a, a lease on a building that was yet to be built directly across the street from the original tap room. And during the time that that building was under construction, the 20 barrels of fermentation space that they had had, the two 10 barrel fermenters, just proved to not be nearly enough. So they kept adding 20 barrel fermenters to the original brew house and just cramming them into the tap room space. Um, and they ended up getting eight 20 barrel fermenters and two 20 barrel brights on top of the two uh, 10 barrel fermenters and brights that they had. And it was just packed full in there. And on that 10 barrel system, it was a brew day every single day. Uh, there was like one break every nine days or so to can an entire batch of beer. And it was pretty crazy. Um, I came on right at the end of that and right before all of the tanks got delivered for a new production facility. And that one's pretty cool because a, it's the second mash press filter in the state, a uh, third if you include some from um, Coors back in the 60s. Uh, but we were, we were the second craft mash press filter in the state. And we also have now um, 10 60 barrel fermenters and two 60 barrel bright tanks. And we have room to get another 10 tanks um, as well. So we have a lot of room to expand, but we've already gone um, to, what is that? 30 times bigger than we were originally. So yeah, it's, it's grown a bit. <laughs> it definitely seems like, so I'm out in Seattle and I've been to Ghostfish uh, Brewing a number of times and over the past, you know, four years since I've, been going to ghost fish every seemed like every six months that i'd go there there was some other big huge piece of equipment mm -hmm. because you can see in the tap room you can see into the brewery there yeah and i know from hosting meetings uh occasionally at at ghost fish you know there's not a lot of space to put anything else in right so yeah i think it speaks to you and it sounds like the same thing with hollow daily that um you know, you guys, that sounds like, I don't know if that's a massive amount of growth or if it's, if it's typical for a brewery to grow that fast, that quickly. 
Is no. that pretty unusual? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it speaks to like the beers that you guys are brewing as well as the market in the state of Colorado and beyond for this product, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. So you just mentioned something that's fascinating to me. You said you had a mash press, right? So mm-hmm. that's, uh, and I did a little bit of reading up on the mash presses and sound like it's, um, not something any other gluten-free brewery has. And so tell us a little bit about this mash press system. Um, How does it work? Uh, Do you see large increases in efficiency from this new system? Is it like uh, life-changing? You could never go back to a standard mash tun. Wow, how does does that whole mash press work when it comes to gluten-free brewing? Yeah, Um, so the, the big difference in a mash press filter versus a traditional um, pub system or a German style louder system is on those uh, more traditional systems, um, what you're relying on is a kind of loose cracking of the grain, regardless of what grain it is. You're relying on, a, on that grain to just kind of be cracked open and the husk to be intact. And then you can use, if you're talking about infusion ton, um, you have the ton where you add the grain and the water, and then you kind of let it sit for a bit, and then you do a Vorloff, and the, the husk ends up being kind of at the bottom. And that layer of husks, or if you use rice holes um, as well, it's the same idea, but you're using that as a filter to filter out some of the proteins and some of the other things, that, um, and also the grain itself that you don't want to actually be in the beer. And for our original system, that's what we have, is a British-style infusion mash ton. Uh, We did get a custom uh, grate. Uh, Colorado State helped us to figure out what kind of gaps we need on there to be more efficient for our grains. But it's essentially the same thing. It's a false bottom. And I know that's a big thing um, on the homebrew side is figuring out what micron screen and how can you source it to be stainless steel for the grain father or whatever. And so getting a beat on that is important. And um, we, we contracted that out to CSU to help us do that for our original system. But we were still relying on the grain to be the filter. On a German style um, louder ton is the same thing. You can go a little bit finer with the grain because you're relying on a much more shallow grain bed. So you don't need to have quite as much of a layer of filtration to hold back all of that crud. Um, the Uber Teague and all these other fun German words. Uh, you, you don't need to rely on as thick of a filter bed. A mash press filter is a little different. It takes that traditional like mash system. We have the layer filter of the husk and then the grain. And then you turn it on its side and you use an artificial screen to do the filtration for you. Once you rely on an artificial screen to do your filtration, you don't care about preserving those husks. So we actually mill our grain with a, um, with a hammer mill on that system. And a hammer mill is completely different from a roller mill. Uh, in a roller mill, you're just using two rollers and the grain goes down between it and it breaks open. On a hammer mill, you have an inlet uh, or an infeed where the grain comes in. And then you have these hammers. They actually are really just like four inch long pieces of metal. And you have them hooked to a central axle. And I think our system has uh, 12 or 16 of these blades, essentially, hooked onto a central axle. And it spins at multi-thousand RPM and just powderizes the grain. Um, It flings it out against a screen, and that screen size determines what's able to make it into your grist. And so we had to kind of find a compromised screen size for our buckwheat and our millet um, but once we had that, we just basically hit go and it turns it to a, a very coarse flour. We mix that with water to create a slurry rather than a traditional mash like oatmeal thickness. This is a slurry. And that slurry is pumped into these chambers. And instead of being a single mash, it's 42 slices. We have 42 screens. It gets pumped in there. And on one side is that filter screen. And then the other side is an air bladder. And the air bladders, the press, the filter screens, the filter. So it's a mash press filter. And the filter screen is like a very thick trampoline cloth material. 
Um, so there's no real risk of any grain getting through there. I mean, even when you're brewing barley on a mash press filter, you still turn the grain to this coarse powder. So it's a slurry that you just need to basically create a sieve to hold back the slurry. And so it's, it's really good at getting every last drop out, particularly because you squeeze it. Um, I'm used to when you have spent grain, it being pretty wet, it's still being about 15 to 20% moisture. We squeeze every last drop out. And so we end up getting, I think like four or 5% moisture, which is about what you would expect from a malt. Um, so yeah, and because we're squeezing every last drop out and because we're grinding the grain to a much finer powder, we actually are able to get more from the grain and the grind is really important to that. Uh, so in terms of kind of extract per pound, we get close to 15 to 20% more from our grain. So I was always told not to squeeze the bag and now you're telling everyone that you're squeezing the bag, right? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so do you talk to us about astringency and, um, I know, I know a lot of the common, uh, you know, folklore or, you know, you know, you had mm -hmm. the forums for brewing beer and they say, if you're BIAB, you know, don't squeeze the bag, you're going to uh, create these uh, astringent flavors and, and bad flavors in your beer. Do you find that to be the case or do you find that to just be a total myth? So I think uh, I was asked this, um, we had talked about this yesterday um, and I kind of went back and thought about it some more. With this particular system, the company that designed it, Mira, um, went, uh, and when they were doing the original designs back in the 60s, that was a big concern. And that was a concern that I had when I first heard about this system as well. Um, they have the experimental data to show that that's not the case. And I was struggling yesterday to think about why that might be the case. Because it does make sense if you squeeze the bag and you get every last drop out of it, you're going to have difficulty with astringency. I was thinking about it though, and that comes from the fact that you do not want the very last runnings of your beer. Um, the general rule is if you get, if you're doing it on a standard gravity and your last runnings of wort, are around two to three percent. That's where you want to, or sorry, two to three degrees Plato. That's where you want to stop. Um, you don't really want to get down to the one Plato range because that's when you start to have the water be dilute enough that is pulling the astringent qualities from the husks. When there's a lot of sugar in the wort, you tend not to get the same. Um, ability of the water to extract those astringent characters. And even though we are getting every last drop out of this, we also have it dialed in so that our last runnings with that squeeze are still around two or three Play-Doh. So we don't over sparge, which is also where you get astringency, is if you over sparge, you'll get astringency regardless of if you squeeze the bag or not. And so we don't over sparge um, and we're leaving a little bit of sugar back, but because the grain was so finely ground, a lot of the stuff that was just inaccessible on our old system became accessible. And so we still get that increase of efficiency without having to go all the way down to the very last runnings of one degree Play-Doh. Nice. So you're just, you're milling the grain so fine that you're able to extract more sugars than you would be if you you did a standard, you know, roller mill or something like that. Nice. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. And then just making sure that you don't drop your, um, your last runnings going into your kettle too low. That's where you get astringency. And that's the same on either system. We don't drop it that low. You've had experience uh, with scaling up other breweries. Uh, Pikes Peak, I'd read about you um, being a part of scaling up that brewery. And then mm -hmm. so you had also been a part, obviously, of scaling up the Hall Deli uh, Brewing. And that sounds like it's continuing today. So do you have any general rules for that brewers would want to follow to scale up in, in a brewery? Yeah. Um, a while ago, I was in a presentation from um, the 
head of operations and the head of packaging at Avery Brewing, um, big brewery in Colorado. And Avery had gone through a couple big expansions as well. And one thing that they said was first, don't be afraid of automation, um, which kind of resonated with me because we were moving towards automation at that point for some things. Because automation means that you don't have to sit there and stir, but you still have to make sure that you're hitting your targets. And if something goes wrong, then you have more to think about than if you were doing it yourself. Um, with automation, the same things can go wrong, but now you need to troubleshoot more. Um, so that's one thing is, I know a lot of brewers like to, especially um, when you're starting out, jump straight to the fully automated homebrew set. But I think it's good to get the principles down just using a, a pot on a stove and then be able to scale up. And as you scale up, don't be afraid that you're losing anything from automation on some of these homebrew sets. There's awesome degrees of automation that you can use. Um, even just like not having to pour, but using a pump. Anything like that makes your beer better, not worse. Um, but then also when you're scaling up a recipe from you know, five gallons to 15 gallons or from 15 gallons to a barrel or from 10 barrels to 30 barrels, the key is you're going to get better extraction as you scale up, particularly from your dark grains. Um, so the same stout as a five gallon recipe, you probably don't need to use nearly as much roast on a 15 gallon recipe or a, a barrel recipe. Um, the other thing too is constantly be monitoring your gravities and your pH. Um, those are the two things I will tell you as you scale up if you're still doing the same recipe. Because at uh, Pikes Peak where I uh, worked originally, they, the owner uh, as a home brewer had developed a recipe that was a Belgian knockoff. Um, and it was a beautiful, I think it was a, I can't remember the name of the beer, but it was a beautiful like four and a half percent Belgian beer, um, great flavors, great aroma, some uh, Belgian sugar in there as well. And when he scaled it up from his homebrew recipe, it was the very first one he wanted to brew on his professional system. Didn't change a thing, just scaled it up directly, just did a linear ramp up and it was a 9% beer. So it doubled in ABV. <laughs> And it became his uh, bestseller right out of the gate. And it's still his bestseller. He's <laughs> kind of <laughs> trapped with this 9% beer that drinks like it's a 4% beer. And everyone gets drunk too. Yeah, too watch, out, watch out on that one, right? <laughs> yeah. So efficiencies will also increase, not just with dark roast in particular, but with all of your grains. Efficiencies increase as you scale up. You're pulling at my heartstrings. And I think that the unicorn beer for most... Um, Gluten-free brewers is the stout. So you mentioning that is, yeah. uh, that's a tough, it's a tough um, style to brew. I think for a lot of gluten-free brewers, um, it's just hard to get yeah. that color. It's hard to get that body and that mouthfeel that you, if you've ever had something that's a gluten beer, it's mm -hmm. hard to match that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and actually I was talking with uh, one of our other brewers, Connor, and he, I asked him, is there any, advice you would like to give. And he said, yeah, with, with stouts, that's always a tricky thing. People tend to want to minimize their grain bills. With a stout on a normal production scale recipe, you might have eight different kinds of roast. And that's been a really tricky thing for gluten-free. But now that there's caramel roasts out there from Grouse, now that there's biscuit from Eckhart, um, you can layer these roasts to get that really full uh, stout flavor. I would say, you know, on a on a typical stout, don't look at Guinness. Guinness probably is not telling you the full truth with their malt bill. Um, yeah. Look at some of the other professional ones that have been released, and they'll have sixty to seventy percent base malt, and then thirty percent will be, you know, six to eight different kinds of roasts with less of the really dark stuff and more of these kind of mid-range ones. Uh, Grouse has a beautiful 240 Lovabond caramel bis or caramel millet. That is near black if you use it. Um, and it's a lot mellower without having this burnt flavor to it. Uh, so you can use that in combination with some of the roasty ones to get some of that 
uh, cocoa espresso flavor. I've got a five pound bag of that sitting in my garage, uh, Alan, and yeah, it, it does it. When I got that, I was, I said yeah. to myself, that is a beautiful, that's mm -hmm. a beautiful looking malt, right? Yeah. It's, and that'll get you pretty, pretty far on a stout. Uh, yeah. That's, seems kind of off to me to be brewing a dark beer in the summertime, but I might have to, I might have to do that pretty soon. <laughs> um, another brewery I interned at uh, would do an Imperial stout where they, and this is actually a fun trick for home brewers too, uh, to double your, your bank for your buck. They would do an Imperial stout where they just boiled the hell out of it and got it to 17 Play-Doh in the kettle, um, which is huge. Um, but it was, the, they would cut the first, or they would cut the, the mash. And about, you know, two thirds of the way through, they would cut it and just take the most strong runnings. And then they would take the last half or third and just save that for another day and then boil that separately. And then they would release the Imperial Stout after aging it in barrels for 18 months. But the, uh, the small stout, they called a summer session stout. It was a three and a half percent stout. That came out in June. Nice. So, oh yeah, perfect. Yeah. Uh, perfect summer stout, right? Exactly. Yeah. Nice. We called it a rain delay, which was a fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to touch on a, a couple technical things. The things that we see commonly uh, on the Homebrew Club and the Zero Tolerance Facebook page, where a lot of the conversation happens, and that's the you know the common things like mashing enzymes, mm -hmm. uh, yeast. So. We can start with enzymes because I know that you've given presentations. I think you had a, a what was it called? Practical enzymatic brewing uh, presentation that you get, gave uh, a while back. So uh, tell us about like how your philosophy on enzyme use with um, the brews that you do today. Um, uh, you can go into however much detail you want in terms <laughs> of what you do or do not use. Um, I know that it's definitely a big subject within our homebrew club. Yeah. Um, so with enzymes, first, um, you pretty much need to be using enzymes with gluten-free brewing. We were um, going to this fall, me and Twyla from Grouse and CSU, were going to uh, try to do some optimization work on MASH and figure out what temperatures we actually need to gelatinize, because that's where a lot of the debate that I've been seeing on the technical side is, is when you malt something, you lower the gelatinization temperature of it. And not a whole lot of work has been done with gluten-free malts, just because it hasn't really been a thing. And a lot of this work was done back in the 50s in England for barley. So figuring out how to optimize the temperatures for gelatinization is kind of a question. And with that, we were looking at if it's possible to mash at 165 Fahrenheit, then the enzymes that are endogenous or naturally occurring in the grain would probably still be surviving. Um, but the issue is compared to barley, which has been bred for thousands of years to be the perfect little capsule for getting sugar into water, Millet, buckwheat, rice, they just don't have the same enzymatic load that barley does, particularly the barley that's used in America, um, which has huge amounts of alpha and beta amylase. So even if you were able to mash at a temperature where the enzymes would survive, you probably still need to be adding some. Um, and so what me and every other uh, gluten-free brewery does is we look to see what enzymes are required to get sugar from malt into wort. And we look at what's lacking and we add that back in. That's how you do gluten-free grain. Um, the issue comes with the details. Um, that's where the devil always lies, is figuring out exactly how much, what to use. But for me, I start with why do you need to use it? And what are you actually trying to gain from it? Um, so I'm gonna just pull up a, a little screen for you guys and I'll share this also on the Facebook group. Um, but for enzymes, there's kind of three steps. Um, this is the breaking down, these are starch granules on the left where you're doughing in or you're mashing in. 
Uh, and by the way, these colors here are what, if you're doing an iodine test, what color the iodine should be sitting on top of your mash. Um, but this, these are the starch granules. At first, you're just trying to get those starch granules to be out of the grains and into the solution. Then you need to gelatinize it, which is going in and just the breaking up of those granules so that the starch chains are now in solution. This is a temperature-based process. It's not really something that you can enzymatically control. And that gelatinization temperature varies based on your grain. Um, from there, you need to do the liquefaction. And liquefaction is just making it so that these are not solids um, clogging up the water, but they're solids dissolved into the water. Uh, it's, it's the difference between when you're um, cooking a, a stir fry and you add some like rice flour to it. At first, you just see the rice flour is kind of gritty in there. And then when it really gelatinizes and then liquefies, it becomes fully immersed in that sauce and it becomes a nice thick shiny sauce kind of, kind of like it's dissolved into the solution essentially yeah kind of yeah okay yep yeah. um and this is one of the things this is a, a barley um image so you have the two different kinds of starch grain or the starch chains um the amylopectin and the uh, uh i'm gonna space this and it's embarrassing uh amylose and the amylopectin i think that's it Correct me if I'm wrong in the comments. Uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna totally Google that after this is yeah. over. <laughs> um, but you you have these two different uh, chains, and the ratio of chained to unchained is very different based on your um, on the grain that you're using, and that's one reason that we actually stick with millet and buckwheat is because we feel like we've gotten a really good handle on how to do the second step of liquefaction with those grains. I know rice has some trickier things to it. Um, and so we we just partially with our proximity to grouse being an hour and a half away, um, we, we've kind of stuck with this, even though we do want to experiment more and just figure out what the, the limits of gluten-free brewing are. Um, yeah, this liquefaction is enzymatic and that's where you have the alpha amylase and then the um, some of the other larger ones coming in uh, like the limit dextrinase, even though it's not really all that active in endogenous barley, you can add polulinase and start to get some of these chains to break right at the branch points. So then when you add um, more alpha amylase, you can start to break it down finer and not have so many of these limit dextrins at the end. The limit dextrin is anywhere where there's a branch that the alpha and beta amylase, if it's present, just can't get to, or the glu uh, glucoamylase, if you're using that as an exogenous enzyme, they just can't get to that branch. And that's where a lot of the body comes from, is having all these branch points that the uh, enzymes can't get to. Then you have these kind of thick sugars that make it all the way through the beer. Um, the sacrification is the final step, and that's also enzymatic. And that's where you're mainly relying on the amylases to break it down. Um, so that's kind of an overview of what you're trying to do with enzymes in the mash. And then the question is, what exactly do you need in order to get there? And for the sacrification, you need amylase, um, beta amylase, if you can get it. Uh, you can get beta amylase, but it's actually commercial beta amylase is derived from barley. So probably not the best idea for gluten-free beer. Um, but you can also get fungal alpha amylase, which is basically beta amylase. Uh, it, it doesn't function like alpha amylase, it functions like beta amylase, and that's where you get some maltose chains coming in. Uh, but even if you're using glucoamylase or something like that, because it's kind of random, you're still gonna have some glucose in there. But regardless of if you have glucose or maltose, um, if you have maltose, great, the yeast will eat it. If you have too much glucose, then you might have the yeast eat all of the glucose and none of the maltose. And that's where you can get stalled fermentations. I think that's actually where some of the um, stalled fermentations I see on the forums come in, is using glucoamylase and having too much glucose, and then just some maltose that was left behind that it couldn't fully clean up. Um, the yeast will stop eating after it has a certain amount of glucose, and it's about 25% of the solution. If it's glucose, it won't eat maltose. 
Um, it's called uh, glucose suppression. Um, so anyway, that's one kind of side of it. Um, another side, let me switch to a different screen. Do, do, do. <laughs> um, the other side is there's a lot of talk currently about um, Andea Pro. And I think that that has a lot of application in unlocking some of the things you need from um, rice in particular, but also other grains that we haven't necessarily tried fully because they haven't been able to be fully processed by the, uh, I hesitate to say traditional gluten-free process because it's 15, 20 years old. But because Ondea Pro wasn't really on the scene as a solution, we haven't really looked at some other grains that might be able to be unlocked by Ondea Pro. The problem with Andea Pro is this is a, a barley kernel. These are all, oops, sorry, let me stop using my mouse. These are all <laughs> of the um, enzymes that are released as a barley kernel is malting. And one of the things that's not really mentioned on this particular slide is um, limit dextrinase. Uh, which is one of those ones that goes in and breaks up the, the branches. Um, the problem with Ondea Pro for me on the commercial scale is it contains all of these enzymes here in the middle. And that's really a Mack truck when I'm looking for a scalpel. Um, yeah. And so I think and a lot of this work has actually been done by the um, Zero Tolerance Group is going in and seeing what do we actually need. And it sounds like really you need pollulinase, which is the exogenous version of limit dextrinase. They're the same enzyme, it's just depending on the source. Um, if it's from barley, it's called limit dextrinase. If it's from any other source, it's pretty much called pollulinase. You can get that by itself. And so that's where I think some of the work needs to be done, particularly on the commercial side, because Omdea Pro is very expensive and it does, it's expensive because it does a great job of fully mimicking the malting process for raw grains. Yeah, because the the whole um, purpose of the existence of Ondia Pro isn't it for brewers using unmalted barley and yeah. um, basically supplying all those enzymes that you would have gotten the malting process without going through that whole process. Right? Yes, yeah. and one of the big ones in there is protease and gluten-free brewers already have enough issue with um, body and head retention and you need proteins for that that using Ondea Pro having that protease it seems like you might be gaining one thing but you might be losing another um, and so that's where you can have that issue but it also contains the things that put those proteins into solution so it's really you're on a knife's edge of am I letting it sit on the enzyme long enough to get those proteins in solution to have the body and head retention, or if I go five, 10, 20 minutes longer, do I all of a sudden have a very thin beer with no head? And one more thing to share, and this one I'm just gonna put up, because um, I'll be putting this on the Facebook group. This is pretty much all of the enzymes that you can get exogenously, commercially or otherwise. And Ondea Pro is a mixture of most of these. Um, you can also get other ones. You can find ones that are called um, like solubilase enzymes, and they might be a mixture of various like uh, beta-glucanase and proteases and xylanases. Um, so when you order an exogenous enzyme, you might be getting a pure enzyme or a blend, and particularly enzymes that were developed back 20, 30, 40 years ago, those are gonna be, hey, we got this enzyme from this fungus or bacteria. It's probably a blend, but it does a really good job of mimicking alpha amylase. So it might be sold as an alpha amylase, even though it's technically a blend. So it's important, uh, particularly if you're moving um, from home brewing to contract brewing or professional brewing, to know your enzyme sources and what their side functions might be. So I'll, I'll just have this chart here and I'll, I'll be posting it later because it's, I think, Pretty com comprehensive chart. Yeah, no, this is great. Thank you. Um, yeah. So in relation to the enzymes, right? Uh, 
um, the obvious next uh, topic would be mashing, right? So from mm-hmm. a mashing perspective, from what you do at Hollow Daily, is, is, is it you typically um, customize that for each beer style that you do? Is there um, equipment limitations with maybe your system where you can only do, you know, following temperatures? Are you able to do whatever you want with your new fancy mash press? Uh, what, what do you do uh, now and what has been done in the past at Hollow Daily for mashing? Sure. Um, so we actually still have the original brew house and that's our pilot system. It's fun to think about a 10 barrel infusion pub system as a pilot system, but it is. And we still have, uh, we have 10 taps on, but on our production facility with the mash press, we have to brew 60 barrels of beer or at the very minimum, I think 45. So if it's not going in a can, it's not being brewed on that system, which means we have to be brewing, you know, six beers to fill those taps. So we're still doing a lot of experimentation on that original system. And for that, our original system, uh, we kind of designed it around a lot of the work that um, Grouse and uh, then also Karen and Wayne did when they were developing the system of figuring out what enzymes do we need? What temperature do we need to gelatinize our grains? And how can we hit both gelatinization temperature and the temperatures the enzymes need to be fully effective. Um, so our mash regime over there, we have no temperature control. So we know that we have to at least hit gelatinization temperature at the start. And then as it cools down, we add the enzymes based on the temperature at which they are most functional. Um, so that's pretty much that's not really a reverse step. It's not really doing a de- reverse decoction. It's just, you know, we have to hit these temperatures so we let it cool down and that takes, we, we have two or three mash steps and that takes like three hours. From that, you can get pretty much any style of beer you want. You just need to be careful about your timing and what enzymes you add when and um, the grains that you're using and particularly the yeast that you're using because a lot of beer style comes from yeast. Um, so, so that's kind of our original setup and we still do that two to three times a month. On our mash press, it's a little different. Um, I said that our original system was a 10 barrel system. Our mash press is designed around the fact that when it's full, it holds a thousand pounds of grain. That thousand pounds of grain is all it will ever hold. So depending on how much sparge water we use, how much strike water we use, that's where we can figure out, is this gonna be a light beer or a dark, or sorry, a light beer or a strong beer? Um, if we have a really thin mash and use a lot of sparge water, we'll have a light beer. If we have a really, really concentrated mash and barely sparge at all, we'll have a really strong beer. And with that, we also have the benefit of there's an agitator in the bottom because it's not really a traditional mash, but more of a slurry. We basically just have this giant propeller in the bottom and it's just constantly blending it. And that means that it's constantly being stirred which means that the enzymes are more effective because enzymes need to actually physically bond with something in order to have an effect. So we can reduce the amount of time um, that we're mashing and we can also control the temperature by adding cold water or injecting steam into the mash to heat it up. So for that one, we kind of just figure out, well, what do we want for our mash temps and what's the easiest way to get those? So we, you know, we go in at one temp, we, heat it up, we cool it down, we heat it back up, and then we send it through the mash press. So it's kind of all over based on now we can actually chase these enzymes, target temperatures pretty exactly. I, I picture you in your, your big boots um, running <laughs> back and forth across the street from brew house to brew house. <laughs> That's probably not how it goes, but... <laughs> uh, it, it actually is. <laughs> um, <laughs> We, we schedule the brew days on separate days, but all of the, now that we have the brand new facility with a big walk-in cooler and freezers for the hops, everything's at the big system. So whenever we brew on the small system, we do end up having to like take everything over in the morning, go back and forth for hops two or three times because we want to keep them cool. Then, yeah, we also go back and forth with all of our testing equipment to go in there and grab gravities and pH and all that and then if we take yeah. kegs we bring the forklift 
it sounds like me running back and forth between my shed and my garage like yep a hundred times like oops i forgot this oops <laughs> i forgot that oops oops yeah there's <laughs> particularly when we're like oh i oh, shoot i forgot to grab the hydrometers so like yeah you do have to run back and forth yeah. a lot i wanted to get your take on um, um for a lot of breweries they their goal is to emulate barley beer styles right mm -hmm. and that's a big thing i mean even in the homebrew community uh, a lot of people came from drinking those beers and that's all they know and so hey i want to drink a beer like i had before i had celiac disease or whatever uh, mm -hmm. uh, but i feel like um, there's a space within gluten-free brewing to create all sorts of you know uniques um, maybe new styles that aren't even out there today what's your take on well for hollow daily uh, are you guys focused on mainly kind of you know emulating those barley beers and but do you see a space within gluten-free brewing for something completely unique so kind of yes to everything um for us because our production team if we want to go and you know we're like hey we want to try to make we, we want to try to make a um we're, we're actually doing this as a collaboration with a, a brewery in colorado in a couple months we want to make a pastry stout. We can go and taste commercial examples of pastry stout, which is, a, I think, a benefit. But it also means that we are now tasting these things and we know what the um, current scene is, which, on the other hand, kind of limits us because we are putting on a blinder of this is the beer style. Um, and that's something that is particularly with all of the openness to enzymes in gluten-free brewing. Um, I don't know if this has really resonated in this particular group, but outside of gluten-free brewing, a lot of brewers are very resistant to enzymes, um, a huge resistance to it. Um, and that's not something that we really see in this group. And that means that we are able to play with a lot of different things. But also we have these flavor profiles coming from grains which no one has experienced in beer for you know a couple thousand years. People were using, you know, they were using some of these like millet was in beer um, in Mesopotamia. I think that was something that came out. But like people have been using these grains for a long time, but it's been so much on the back burner that it's not a flavor profile that people are really familiar with. And there's an opportunity there for Holidayly on our flagships they really came from people saying like, I really miss an IPA. And so we won't be able to provide an IPA that tastes like an IPA they remembered and give them that beer again in a safe, dedicated gluten-free form. Not gluten reduced, not in a combined facility, but having a dedicated, safe, gluten-free IPA. So for things like that, yeah, we are trying to stay within the styles, particularly if we submit them to GABF or World Beer Cup, outside of the gluten-free category. Um, we did that with blonde and we didn't make it to the finals, but we beat out 40 other blondes by making it to the final round. Um, so we didn't actually win a medal, but we did beat 40 gluten blondes in the normal blonde category. And that's kind of what we're trying to do uh, for our flagships is bring those flavors to the gluten-free arena. Um, but on some of our experimental beers, we're willing to go outside the box a little bit uh, but one thing that we don't want to do is get in the habit of making seltzers because we know they're gluten-free. We want to make beer. Um, so we do want to make something that is beer, even if it might be something new and unexpected and outside the realm of normal. I was waiting for the holiday seltzer line to come out. And now you just totally put the kibosh on that, right? <laughs> uh, I, I feel like I am authorized to say that is not something that we really want to go down the rabbit hole of. <laughs> So uh, we've uh, we've got a little bit over. So I just had one last question for you before we uh, before we let you go. So for uh, since we're a homebrew club at heart, right? Mm -hmm. um, just want to get your uh, uh, your take on if you have any advice for the gluten free homebrewer out there in the zero tolerance club when it brew it comes to brewing a great gluten free beer. What advice would you have for a homebrewer that's either starting out and has never done a beer at all or is all grain and maybe looking to 
move into contract brewing or something like that. Yeah. Um, I also asked um, Connor about this when I was brewing with him today. And I think one thing that particularly um, Zero Tolerance has going for it is the dedication of its members to making their beer and making it safe. I mean, you have people all over the world doing their own malting, for God's sake, you know? They're going around and making sure that they can do what to make uh, the beer that they want as safe as possible. And when you're going really from scratch, when you're starting out as a home brewer in general, it's helpful, um, and this was Connor's advice, to go bold. There's a tendency to be like, okay, I really want to start and make a, uh, you know, cream ale or a Vienna lager or something like that. Start with an IPA. Start with doing these big flavors. Um, maybe, maybe do a fruit beer to start. Uh, add a lot of coriander, do a Belgian. Um, add a lot of orange peel. Because when you go bold, it makes your beer, like for your very first batch, it makes it something that you're willing to drink because it doesn't necessarily enhance all of the off flavors. Um, I know my very first beer, I, I ended up doing a, a Belgian and it was pretty rough. Uh, <laughs> my, my first homebrew temp was pretty rough. Um, and so I had to add a ton of orange peel and a ton of coriander and I had to go on a Facebook group to figure out what to add. Or actually back then it was, uh, it was probably like some weird sketchy website, not Facebook. Um, but yeah, if you go bold, you can cover up a lot of sins and then start to refine your process, figure out what works best for you and refine it down to some of those really clean beers because a Pilsner is super hard to make. Even on a professional scale, it's near impossible, even with barley, to make a really good Pilsner because it just blares any inf uh, imperfection. It's just right out there in front. So having those bold flavors helps. Um, but also be really, really willing to pivot. We do this all the time. We brew a beer and we're like, okay, we didn't get anywhere near the extraction we wanted from that. So it's not gonna be, an, uh, it's not gonna be a, an 8% beer. So we're gonna end up adding a lot of fruit and this is gonna be a session um, summer beer for us. You know, being able to just, when something doesn't go right, don't hold your recipe too precious but learn from that mistake and be better next time and make your beer that you have sitting in your fermenter as good as possible while you have it. Um, and if you end up having to dump it, it's a lot easier to dump at that scale, but still it's very heartbreaking. Um, and the last thing is just a quote uh, from uh, Dr. Michael Bamforth, or sorry, <laughs> Dr. Michael Lewis, who's partnered with Charlie Bamforth in a lot of stuff. But uh, Dr. Michael Lewis has this great book out. Um, this is kind of a companion to the John Palmer book. This is super in-depth. This is what it means to be making beer on a very granular chemistry microbiology scale. It means it's super dry, but it's a great resource for learning the entire process, particularly if you're trying to go from malting um, your own grain to a beer. And kind of a companion to that is a Charlie Pam fourth beer. This one's probably a little um, expensive, but I needed it for my class. Um, this is Charlie Bamforth Beer Quality Perspective book. And the thing that makes this one so helpful is if you encounter a problem, it has fishbone charts of, this is for beer clarity. Um, this has a fishbone chart of where along this process might I have an issue. Um, you can see some things that we were looking at uh, doing, um, but anyway, so those are two books that kind of give you a full view of brewing from all the way from uh, harvesting the grain and hops to your glass. And uh, Michael Lewis has a quote, think broadly and widely when problem solving, throw the entire breadth of knowledge up on the board, all of brewing. Because if you have a problem with head retention, make sure first that your glass is clean and not soapy. Like make sure that you have the entire breadth of knowledge up there. Knock off the things that are the first easy to uh, eliminate issues and then narrow down on what do I actually need to either do differently or do I need different equipment or do I need to change a process? But having that entire breadth of knowledge will mean that you're not going down a rabbit hole of 
trying to get all the protein into the glass when you just needed to clean your glass better. That reminds me. True experience, by the way. That I reminds me of. <laughs> that reminds me of the. Um, you know, your, your internet's work not working. Uh, make sure your router's plugged in, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, I definitely can see. You know, especially for new brewers. You know, myself included. When something would go wrong in a brew day, it's easy to get panicked and just not know what to do, right? And that can happen mm -hmm. at the start of the brew. It could happen when you're, you know, gravity is way too low. You're like, oh, what am I going to do? Yeah. And you get this, these gravity up. All sorts of things can go horribly wrong. It, it, there's definitely a lot of moments where you just have to relax. You know, the old mm -hmm. Charlie Papazian, you know, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew, right? So. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's a big thing is when you, when I say master the pivot, it's beer. It's all beer. You should be enjoying it. If you're, if you're so concerned about making this recipe um, perfect and something goes wrong, you still have beer. That's pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, so much for joining us today, Alan. We really appreciate you um, taking the time to, uh, to do this. And mm -hmm. we hope to see more of Hollow Daily in the future. I'm sure you all have a bunch of delicious beers that are coming out pretty soon and distribution is probably going to be expanding um right now you're just available in uh colorado and arizona i believe is that correct yep in arizona we're in tucson flagstaff and phoenix and in colorado we're border to border great thank you so much and i just want everyone to remember out there no barley no wheat no rye no problem <laughs> Thank you for this. It's been a lot of fun.